Well, you know, if you were to, to read the Bible from cover to cover, you would find uh, the subject of moderation to be a common theme throughout, uh, from how we eat and drink uh, to how we work, how we rest, from how we express our emotions uh, to how we seek pleasure for ourselves, for how we spend our time and our money, even when it comes, <clears throat> even when it comes to how we express the spiritual gifts that his word says are given to us from God while we're gathered in church. Even with that, the, the scripture teaches moderation over and over and over again. It's a common theme and actually a healthy prescription for life, save one profound exception. When it comes to loving God and loving each other, there's absolutely no room for moderation. In fact, in terms of our relationships with him and with one another, moderation is the enemy because it breeds indifference. And I'll tell you, nothing will kill a relationship faster than indifference. And yet, <clears throat> the modern church in the West, I hate to say, but it's true, is rife with indifference today, both toward God and toward one another. People can walk in and out of church not knowing and not concerned in the least with how their brothers and sisters in Christ are even doing. Some folks are more concerned with how a church looks today or how the people in the church look than they are about being in the presence of a holy God and with his holy bride, their own brothers and sisters. There are Christians who are more passionate about the song selection than they are about actually worshiping God. We have churches today full of believers who are far more concerned with getting to do what they want in the church than they are with serving where they're needed. I'm telling you, we've served God and others in moderation for so long that we've become increasingly indifferent about actually being with him and with each other to the point that we're willing to give God and, and one another a part of our lives, but usually not all of it. And I'm telling you, it is killing our relationships within the body of Christ in this country, within the church, while, while we think we're being wise. Because most of us have been taught one way or another to treat relationships with cautious moderation, to protect our own interests first instead of putting each other first. But Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. John 15, 13, he also said, just as I've loved you, you are to love one another. John 13, 34. Well, how did Jesus love us? Not with moderation. Right? He gave everything for us. Uh, John, the apostle closest to Jesus, said, By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John three sixteen. He, he said, Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 1 John 3.18, the, the Apostle Paul said, Owe no one anything except to love each other. Romans 13.8, he said, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 12.10, the, the Apostle Peter said, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. 1 Peter 4.8. You see, the, the men and women who followed Jesus during his time on earth, learned from him to love each other without reservation 
or moderation. There was no indifference for them when it came to loving God and loving each other. For them, it was an all or nothing proposition. <clears throat> and indeed, most of them in the end gave all that they had for Christ and for each other. And yet, for many in this modern age, we've been taught in one form or another that, that what we do for others should be done in moderation, while that which we do for ourselves can be done in excess, right? It, growing up, most of us were taught to cultivate self-esteem, but Scripture teaches us to cultivate esteem for Christ. Most of us have been taught to love ourselves. Scripture teaches us to love God and others above ourselves. Most of us have been taught to feed our own will, to strive in this life for ourselves. But Scripture teaches us to crucify our will in deference to His and to give our lives away for Him and for others. It is the norm in our culture to moderate our giving while maximizing our getting. It's the very opposite of what Jesus taught. And of course, that's not unique uh, to this period in history. Self-love has been a part of the human condition since the dawn of humankind. And so Jesus came, as you know, and he showed us a better way. But that better way came with a warning label because he wanted people to understand exactly what it was they were getting into if they decided to actually follow him. So he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What a strange thing to say. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Bearing your own cross meant you were on your way to die a horrible death. That's a strange thing to say. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began, began to build but was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. You, do you get what Jesus is saying here? He's saying you had better think long and hard about what you're getting into before you decide to follow me because the cost couldn't be any higher. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, you cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 26 through 33. By the way, the word hating there, or to hate in the ancient Hebrew, is a Semitic uh, expression. It meant to love less. So Jesus was saying, if you're going to follow me, then I need you to understand something. This is an all or nothing deal. You cannot have anything else in your life that you love more than you love me. I have to be first in your life or you cannot be my disciple. 
That means no indifference, no moderation. It means all or nothing. That is how you're going to have to love me. And that is how you're going to have to love each other. Otherwise, don't bother calling yourself my disciple. Wow. It's about as clear as you can be. When it comes to being a disciple of Christ and a part of his church, he says, you're either all in or you're not really in at all. There was no middle ground for Jesus. There was, there was no middle ground for the apostles. There, there really should be no middle ground for us. It's a lesson, actually, God's people have had to learn throughout the ages, which we're going to see in our story today as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the book of Joshua, where God's people had been indifferent toward him and toward each other for a very long time. There was a, a lot of uh, grumbling and complaining among his people. A lot of them were looking out for themselves first, which resulted in the whole lot of them wandering around in the wilderness, falling short of their calling, missing out on all that God had planned for them for 40 years until something decisive happened. For the first time since leaving Egypt, they were finally all in. They were all in for God. They were all in for each other. And the effect was immediate and dramatic as their leader Joshua under the direct command of God leads them miraculously across the Jordan River into the promised land of Canaan. Last week we looked at that, the first half of the story of that triumphant crossing of the river. And so today we're going to finish that part of the overall narrative where God's people learn that truly living for him and for each other is without question an all or nothing decision. So we're going to pick up the story right where we left off last week at Joshua chapter 4. We'll begin with the first seven verses. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, What do those stones mean to you? And you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. <clears throat> Last week we learned that there were, there were over two and a half million Jews, along with their livestock and all their personal belongings, crossing the river Jordan. Obviously this was a massive undertaking as they had to drop down about 200 feet into the Ez-Zor. It was a, a thicket about a mile wide surrounding the river bottom. And then after navigating their way through that tangled mess of thorns and thistles full of wild animals, they had to cross the river while God held back the waters and then through the thicket on the other side and then back up to the valley floor 200 feet above them, dragging everything they owned in tow. The entire affair 
was such an epic event, one of the great supernatural miracles of all time with profound significance on many different levels. And we'll talk about that as we go. But it was such a defining moment for God's people that the Lord told Joshua to make a memorial there commemorating the day when God made good on his promise to his people. And the memorial was to be constructed out of 12 large stones representing, of course, the 12 tribes of Israel, which was very significant because two and a half of those 12 tribes were not settling west of the Jordan River in Canaan. If you were here for chapter 1, you'll remember that the Transjordanian tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh were to settle east of the Jordan. So why set up a memorial for all 12 tribes on the other side of the river if they weren't all going to live over there? Well, it's because from those Transjordanian tribes, 40,000 armed elite fighting men had gone with the rest of Israel across the river to take part in the military conquest to take possession of the land. And only after that would they return to their own tribes. In other words, all of the tribes of Israel were taking part in the crossing of the Jordan. They were all taking a part in uh, the conquest of Canaan, possessing the promised land, even though some of them would later live on the east side of that river, which is why God makes clear in his instruction to Joshua that the memorial was to include 12 stones, not nine and a half stones. Because as far as God was concerned, for his people, this was an all or nothing campaign. The memorial was for all of God's people, regardless of which side of the Jordan they settled on. It's also why what actually prompted God to instruct Joshua to build the memorial was not the moment that he held back the waters. It was the moment the last person among them made it across the river. Verse 1 says, When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, and then he gives them instructions about the memorial because God could have held back those waters as he did, but if the people refused to cross over, Right? There would have been nothing to memorialize concerning the, the 12 tribes of Israel, at least. So God waited, not until some of them finally decided to cross, not until most of them had made it across. No, God waited until every last person had crossed safely over that river because when God calls his people to move, it is an all-or-nothing command. We go together or we don't go at all. Okay, the Great Commission in Matthew 28 was not given to a few men to remember. It was given to the church. The teachings and instructions of the apostles in the New Testament were written to the church. The institutions of water baptism and holy communion were given for the church. God's promises through Christ were made to the church. His love for this world was meant to be expressed to this world through the church, right? He died in the worst possible way for the church, and he's coming back again one day to collect his church. This idea that all I need in this life is me and Jesus, that is not a biblical concept. 
Yes, we very much need Jesus as individuals, but we also very much need each other. It's the way God meant for it to be, for us to be on this journey of life together. And he put each of us here right now in this one chapter of history, this one moment in time with all of our individual character traits and talents and abilities and resources, everything he's given us. He's brought us all together right here in this moment of time to do what he's called us to do together as the church. You, you cannot and you will not become all that God has created you to become or accomplish all that he's called you to accomplish without the church. You will not. 1 Corinthians 12, the apostle Paul referring to Christians said, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, that means the church, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You see, being a follower of Jesus Christ, it's an all or nothing deal, which means we're in this together whether you like it or not. Okay, being a part of this family means you're going to have to be vulnerable at times, willing to lean on others, and those others had better be ready and willing to hold you up when you need it. Just as the crossing of the river by the Israelites was not recognized or memorialized until every single one of them was across, we are not accomplishing what God wants us to accomplish if we're not doing it together. And yet, I'm just telling you, an awful lot of Christians act as if participating in the life of the church is optional. <laughs> it is not optional. Not, not as far as God is concerned. And by the way, I'm not just talking about uh, showing up for services on Sundays. I'm talking about the life of the church, which is to say what is happening in our lives, not just on Sunday, but every other day that ends in Y as well. I'm pretty sure that's all of them. You with me? Hey guys, it's, it's, it's Monday through Saturday. We're supposed to be doing this thing together, okay? When was the last time you gave up something you wanted to do so you could do something for someone else? When was the last time you hurt with someone who was hurting? Right? When's the last time you celebrated with someone who was celebrating? Because this life isn't just about me and Jesus. It's about me and Jesus and all of you, my family, every other believer on this planet, in fact, but especially those God has placed in my everyday life, okay? You need us and we need you because we are the church, which means we go together or we don't go at all. Let's keep reading. Verse 8 the first, uh, through the first half of verse 10. 
And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. They carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan. Right? Did you catch that? Verse 9. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they're there to this day. For the priest bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. So the men representing each of the 12 tribes gathered the stones as instructed and took them to a place called Gilgal. It's where the Israelites would set up their encampment. But we also find Joshua in verse 9 setting up a second memorial of 12 stones in the river itself in the exact spot where the priests were holding the Ark of the Covenant, right where they were standing, which would have been visible uh, every year during the season of drought when the water levels dropped dramatically. And he did that as a sign for future generations that God dried up that part of the river for the Jews to be able to cross over into the Promised Land. And, and uh, just for the sake of full disclosure, there are scholars who believe there was actually only one memorial at Gilgal, and so they say this reference to Joshua setting up stones in the river in verse 9, according to them, was just some kind of parenthetical literary thought in the writing about the memorial stones coming from the river. And I'll just tell you, it makes no sense to me because it's quite clear when you read the passage that Joshua set up a second memorial in the river. It simply says that. There are other scholars who believe that Joshua did set up 12 stones in the river, but that those were the same stones the 12 men then picked up and took to Gilgal. Uh, the problem with that theory is not only does the, the passage not say that, it doesn't say that the men took those stones uh, that Joshua had stacked up in the river, but if you read the Septuagint, it's the, uh, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, also uh, in the Vulgate, which is the Latin ancient translation of the Bible, both of those documents clearly state that the stones Joshua erected in the river were not the same stones used at Gilgal. So based on a, a very simple face value reading of the text and some of our ancient manuscripts, and not to mention there are a lot of other scholars who agree with me or I agree with them here, Joshua not only set up the memorial at Gilgal to testify to the crossing of the Jordan and the establishing of his people in Canaan, which we'll talk more about in a moment, but he set up a second memorial in the river as a testimony to what God did for all the 12 tribes of Israel when he held back the waters in their crossing in that very location, which is real important, and I'll mention that again later too, okay? But let's keep reading for now. We'll start at halfway through verse 10, down to verse 14. The people passed over in haste. When all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over before the people armed, before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On the day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. So it's a flashback here to the actual crossing, and Joshua says that the people passed over 
in haste, preceded by 40,000 well-armed men who were prepared to do battle. It's important to note here that not only were the Hebrew people crossing over into the land promised to their ancestors, they were also crossing over into enemy territory. All right, among the enemy cities of Canaan, the city of Jericho was the most heavily fortified and well-defended of them all, and it lay six miles west of the Jordan River and about 10 miles north-northwest of the Dead Sea, deep in the Jordan River Valley, just opposite uh, the location where the Jews crossed over the river, which begs the question, why would you cross there? Why not cross some, somewhere further away from the city of Jericho, right? It seems like a, a poor strategy from a military perspective to cross the river where it was closest to the enemy stronghold. Actually, the opposite was true because where the Israelites crossed the Jordan was absolutely the most unexpected place for an invading army to cross. You remember, they were 18 miles south of the city of Adam, when they, when they crossed the river. The river there was particularly deep and wide and fast where they crossed. So if an army had any hope of fording the river in one piece, they would have to make their attempt much farther north, which would also place them much farther away from Jericho, which is the logical thing for an attacking army to do. The thing is, the Canaanites knew that, which meant if Canaanite troops were going to try and ambush an invading army, they would wait near the northern fords, right? Not by the river opposite Jericho. That would make no sense. So, look, this was a well-devised military campaign. The Israelites crossed over the river quickly and decisively with 40,000 armed troops ready to fight in the most unexpected part of the river, ready for war. And yet, their most elite fighting men these Transjordanian tribes, the Jews who were settling east of the Jordan, these were people making no attempt to claim, claim any of the land in Canaan west of the Jordan. So it's great. They're obviously helping the other tribes get across the river. But what about Jericho? What about when that happens? What about all the lands in Canaan that must be conquered after Jericho before God's people could even settle there? The answer is, these 40,000 fighting men were not going to leave their fellow Israelites until every last battle was fought. Not until the promised land was secured, even though their wives and children and belongings were, were back there behind them. On the other side of the river, their commitment was to the whole family of Israel, not just their individual families. You see, the prevailing attitude among the Jews was, we fight together, or we don't fight at all. These 40,000 fighting men were not just a, a military escort across the river to get the people into Canaan. No, they were as invested in the battles to come as any one of the Jews who would actually be living there. Would have been easy for these men to simply say, you know what, this isn't really our fight. This is in our battle. Our land on the other side of the river has already been secured. We're taken care of. Our families are back there waiting for us, safe and sound. But you know what, guys? Good luck. We'll be praying for you. That's not what they did. 
No, they fought for the land, for their brothers and sisters, just as they would have had it been their own. Because for them, being a part of God's family was all or nothing. And yet, how many Christians today, when a brother or sister in Christ is fighting a battle of their own, how many of us are willing to offer prayers and well wishes, but little else? I was in seminary in England years ago, and there was a young lady there that I became friends with who went to school at the same seminary. And she posted one day on Facebook during those years that uh, when we were out of session, that her apartment had been broken into, and among other things, uh, her laptop, like a $2,500 laptop, had been stolen. And she said, this is what I've done all of my schoolwork on to date, and I have it backed up, but if I don't get another computer, I'm, I'm going to have to drop out of the program because I can't do my work. And she had no money. We were all a bunch of broke pastors going to school. So I went on to Facebook and the other four million people that knew her and said, I'm so sorry. We love you. We're praying for you. And I meant it. But after about a day of that, a guy that I later found out who's a friend of hers who's not a believer went onto Facebook and he said, hey guys, I just wanted to mention something. I counted the number of all the people who went onto her post and said, I'm praying for you. And I just thought you should know that if every one of you sent her a check for $50, she would have more than enough money to buy a new computer and replace the other things that were stolen from her. <laughs> you want to talk about being convicted? I went home that day and I mailed her a check for $50. In fact, I mailed her a check for $100. Listen, prayer is unequivocally the most powerful action that we can ever take on behalf of ourselves and other people. And I don't want to minimize that. There is nothing else on this earth or in heaven even close to being as powerful as prayer. But that doesn't mean we're excused from doing anything else. In Acts 2, when you read the description of the early church, you find these Christians selling their personal belongings just to be able to pay for the needs of the others among them. Right? How many Christians do that today? I know some that do. How many, though? When one of our brothers or sisters is in need, how many of us are willing to sell something of our own to meet that need, let alone a $50 check? You see, our attitude when another believer is struggling, our attitude should be, yes, I am praying for you. But listen, I'm also fighting with you. I will not let you do this alone. I'm with you every single step of the way. Whatever personal sacrifice is required of me, you need to know I am fighting this battle with you. Do you know that the conquest of Canaan lasted seven years? years. That means 40,000 men from the tribes east of the Jordan left their families and homes behind to fight with the rest of Israel for seven years. Seven years they offered their own lives to their fellow Israelites because for them it was all or nothing. 
It was much more than about just their individual families. It was about the family of God. So as far as they were concerned, this was an all or nothing deal. There was no middle ground. There was no moderation. There was no indifference. There was no idle talk and there were no empty promises. When it came time to fight, they took up arms. They went before the rest of the nation of Israel to make war on their common enemies. And as long as it would take, they would stay with it until every last Hebrew among them was at peace in the land promised to them. Do you understand that's the way it's supposed to be? Nothing has changed in that regard for God's people. No one fights alone. No one faces the enemy alone. No one in God's family should ever have to wonder whether or not someone will be with them when the battles in this life come. Whether it's seven years or seven days, we fight together or we don't fight at all. Because for God's people, this is all or nothing Let's keep reading verses 15 through 18. And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priests feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. And so we saw last week, It was the presence of God represented by the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony that held back the waters of the Jordan so that the people could cross over on dry ground. And we talked about the fact that uh, some scholars believe that the damming of the waters was a natural occurrence caused by an earthquake and a subsequent mudslide, which is, first of all, mentioned nowhere in Scripture. And so I I won't go back through all of that again other than to say the fact that the water stopped flowing the moment the ark was carried into the water and then returned to its normal flow the moment the priest carried the ark out of the water is either the biggest coincidence in all of human history or this was indeed a supernatural work of God on behalf of his people. And for what it's worth, I'm betting on the latter. Right? Let's finish the story. Verse 19 to the end of the chapter. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. Those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? You shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So on the tenth day of the first month, the people of God came up out of the Jordan and camped at Gilgal, where they would make preparations to begin possessing the promised land. The same day, 40 years earlier, the Israelites made preparations for the first Passover in Exodus 12, 3, which of course precipitated their coming up out of Egypt. I'm telling you, just like the timing of the ark entering and exiting the Jordan, corresponding with the flow of the waters, this as well was no coincidence. God's plan for his people was unfolding to the day 
just as he had foreordained it. And yet before they did anything else concerning Canaan, they first set up the memorial of 12 stones at Gilgal, the place that would serve as their main base of operations throughout their early conquest of Canaan. They took time to set up these stones as a testimony, not only to God's people, but to all the earth, that there is but one true God who's been working through his people across the ages and continues to work through them today in ways that only he can. Again, the fact that there were 12 stones in the memorial distinctly includes the tribes from east of the Jordan as part of this great testimony, which is how God intended it to be concerning the testimony of his people. We testify together or we have no testimony at all. In other words, as God's people, what we testify to is meaningless if we're not all saying the same thing about who God is and what he has done, right? If everyone is saying something different about who God actually is right now and if we're all saying something different about what he has done for his people in the past, then the church loses its identity and the testimony becomes useless, feckless, completely ineffective. As a professor of theology and author, James Gustafson wrote, the church is shaped by a common memory. Right? Another professor and author, Alan Verhey, put it this way. He said, without remembering, there is no identity. In amnesia, one loses one's identity. And without common remembering, there is no community. You see, this is precisely why God had Joshua make these stone memorials so that people would never forget what actually happened, what God actually did for his people and the fact that what he did was done through all of his people, all 12 tribes. Otherwise, over time, some of the tribes west of the Jordan might have said, you know, the tribes east of the Jordan didn't really take part in the conquest except that there were 12 huge stones in Gilgal. So not much of an argument there. Or generations later, others might have said, you know, they didn't really cross in the deepest part of the river. Must have been farther north in the shallow parts. Well, no, you see, because there's a memorial of 12 huge stones right in the middle of the river in the exact spot where they crossed. Not a whole lot to disagree on there. You see, when God's people share a common memory about what God has done for them, when we all testify together about what he has done for his people, it is powerful and it sends a powerful and united message to the world. That's why it is so important that we don't just treat Sundays at church like a pep rally to pump us up for the week we're about to face at work or at school or at home. No, it's far more than that. We come here to learn together. This is time that we very purposefully dig deeper into God's word so that we can understand who he is and what he has done for us so that our testimony is a shared understanding and a common memory. Yet that testimony we share is also more than just remembering what he's done in the past. It is also a testament to what he's doing today through his people as we live out the gospel together. 
Jesus said, by this, all people in the world, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 35. In other words, our testimony to the world about Jesus Christ is dependent on each other. It's dependent on how well we love one another. That means you can be Mr. Super Christian. You can be Miss, Miss Wonder Woman Christian. You can do all of the things that we think Christians are supposed to do. But if we do not love one another well, no one will pay attention to our testimony. I'm telling you, it is all for naught if we don't love each other, for that is our greatest testimony, our love for our fellow Christians, according to Jesus. Again, you can do great things for this world, uh, tremendous acts of social justice, as we should, but at the end of the day, if you cannot love your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you cannot represent Christ. It's all or nothing. The Apostle John said, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. 1 John 4.20. By the way, when he uses the word brother, it's the ancient Greek word adelphos. It means the brother in Christ. That's how he's using it, a fellow Christian, okay? And just like those 12 stones that Joshua left at Gilgal and again in the river as a testimony to who God is and what he's done, Jesus Christ left us with his love as a testimony to who he is and what he's done. But if that love isn't on display for the world to see, what good is it? Right? What if Joshua had hidden the rocks in a cave or buried them underground? Right? They never would have testified to the world about the God of Israel. It's not enough for us to have positive feelings or good vibes, good intentions toward one another. Our love has to be lived out every single day before a watching world if it's going to testify to the truth about Jesus Christ. That's going to mean doing things for one another at times that you don't feel like doing. That will mean preferring others over yourself. That will mean being willing to be seen for who you actually are, not who you want people to think you are. And then extending that grace for others to be able to do the same without condemnation. That will mean thinking the best of people instead of the worst. That will mean being honest about your own faults and owning up to your own mistakes and forgiving others even when they don't. That will mean making the effort on a consistent basis to know how your brothers and sisters in Christ are doing and then helping them when they're not doing so well. Spending your own time, your own money, your own life in the service of others until you realize that your time and your money and life aren't your own anyway. That's when the church becomes so much a part of you that it truly feels like a body that you're a member of. That's when you realize how much you need the church and how much the church needs you. We've gotten this idea largely through modern popular preaching that our first responsibility as Christians is to the world. When in fact, 
Our first responsibility, of course, after Christ himself, is to one another, fellow members of the church of Jesus Christ, because that is the body that we belong to, and that is what our testimony to this world hinges upon. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Galatia, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Galatians 6.10. Not because we're greedy, because our love for one another is our testimony to the world. Which means if we have no love for each other, then we have no testimony. Right? It's all or nothing. We testify together or we have no testimony at all. If Joshua had set up nine and a half stones, that would have been a sure sign that Israel was fragmented. The perfect way to bolster the resolve of your enemies. But he set up 12 stones so that the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And it worked, by the way. We'll see that in the next chapter. Okay, look, this life is not a practice run. We don't get to do it over. The truth is we get one shot at this life before we enter eternity. We get one opportunity to make the most of it, and each passing day is a day that we can never get back. So when it comes to loving God and loving others, do you really want your life to be known for moderation Indifference, or do you want it to be known for making a difference? Because for you, it was all or nothing. That's a choice each one of us has to make to engage yourself in the life of the church, to fight for it, loving people, even if it costs you everything that you have, because this is an all or nothing deal. Jesus was clear. He said, you cannot have anything else in your life that you love more than you love me. I have to be first in your life or you cannot be my disciple. That means no more indifference. It means no more moderation. It means no more middle ground. From here on out, it's all or nothing. Let's pray.